From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A study recently published in JAMA found that severe alcohol-related liver disease is on the rise, especially among young adults. One likely cause? Binge drinking. Excessive use of alcohol causes cirrhosis, or scarring of the liver. And once cirrhosis happens, the damage can't be undone. On today's program, we'll learn more about alcohol-related liver disease from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, the growing specialty of cardio-oncology, cancer and the heart. And how lifestyle factors can affect your brain health. That's this week's program, up next. Alcohol-related liver disease is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And as the name implies, it's caused by excessive consumption of alcohol. It is common, but it's also virtually totally preventable. For most people, moderate drinking won't lead to liver disease. But more and more Americans, even young Americans, are developing severe liver disease. And it may be related, and it may well be related to heavy binge drinking. Unfortunately. Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and hepatologist, liver specialist. Hepatologist. All right. right. Dr. Doug (laughs) Simonetto. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Simonetto, good to have you on the program. Uh, Unfortunate topic that we have to talk about. So Mm -hmm. I guess it's safe to say that too much alcohol is not good for the liver? That is correct. Too much alcohol. And for some people, it doesn't have to be too much, actually. Oh, wow. How does does alcohol affect the liver? Yes. um, So it's a good question. So most of alcohol that we ingest ends up being taken up by the liver to be metabolized. And in that process, as the liver is breaking down the alcohol, it forms these toxins or toxic metabolites. They can actually cause liver injury. So it can cause death of liver cells as well as accumulation of lipids um, inside the liver cells. Which lipids can, are fats. Exactly, fats, exactly, um, inside the liver cells, which can cause uh, liver injury. So the liver is a very lean organ. It normally doesn't have any fat in it. Uh, but people that consume um, a lot of alcohol, they can develop fat accumulation, which can cause uh, liver injury, uh, liver cell death, and eventually scar tissue even. And you mentioned that uh, even a little alcohol can uh, have adverse effects on the liver for some people. So uh, there's uh, different uh, people react to it in different ways. Some are more susceptible to alcohol than others, to that liver is, disease from alcohol. Yes, th- that is correct. So there are some predisposing factors that can increase someone's risk of developing alcohol-related liver disease. Um, one common one that we know of is uh, women are more likely to develop or more susceptible to alcohol-related liver injury. Um, and there are two potential hypotheses why that is. One is uh, smaller body size. And second is because women have lower levels of an enzyme in the stomach that helps break down alcohol. So because so this enzyme in the stomach, for us, it helps break down alcohol, so there's less alcohol available to be taken up by the liver. So there's less effective alcohol circulating and causing injury. So women have less of this enzyme that breaks down the alcohol, so there's more alcohol getting to the liver and causing injury. I'm sorry, continue. No, it's good. So in addition to that, other risk factors include obesity. Um, so people who are overweight or are obese are more likely to, by itself are at risk of developing liver disease or fatty liver. Uh, so any 
additional alcohol intake uh, may be detrimental. When you talk about safe limits of drinking, that's, uh, again, variable because there are many factors that can influence that. So not just heavy binge drinking being something that's on the rise, but also uh, obesity. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and, and that explains the fact that there are so many more people with alcohol-related liver disease. There's more alcohol being consumed? Um, yes, and it, I think the patterns have changed a little bit over the last uh, 20 years. And in the past, we used to think that daily drinking was worse than binge drinking, and now we're seeing this rise in alcohol-related, uh, not just alcohol-related, but severe alcohol-related liver injury Um particularly in young patients, ages 25 to 40, um, and as well as young women. And we think that changes we've seen in the last uh, couple of decades is the pattern of drinking. Uh, it's not just the amount of alcohol being consumed, but how it's being consumed. Um, so again, before you should think that daily drinking was worse, but now we're finding out that binge drinking may actually be worse. Mm. And binge drinking being defined as uh, four or more drinks within two hours for women and five or more drinks within two hours for men may be actually worse than drinking two, two, one to two drinks a day. Yeah, two is too many and three is not enough. Oh, boy. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> uh, we all do. No, wait, we don't. Not like you. Okay, sorry. Uh, what are the different uh, types of disease that alcohol causes in the liver? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So it's a spectrum. Uh, so typically we think about the progression of liver disease from, from alcohol um, excess, uh, starting with um, mild liver inflammation and fat accumulation in the liver, as I mentioned before. So early stages, uh, patients may not have any symptoms. They may essentially have what we call alcohol steatosis, alcohol-related steatosis, which means fat accumulation in the liver. Um, these patients have no symptoms. Often they are found to have fat in the liver incidentally when they have an ultrasound or a CAT scan for other reasons, or routine blood tests when they have elevated liver enzymes. So that's the initial phase. Then if the alcohol excess continues uh, over time, it becomes a chronic problem, then these patients go on to develop uh, inflammation. They would call that steatohepatitis, steato for fat, hepatitis for inflammation. Um, then we have a more significant increase in the liver enzymes, but patients still don't have a lot of symptoms uh, in the mild um, uh, form of it. And then that eventually over the course of years, uh, um, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, can go on to uh, cirrhosis stage, which essentially means scar tissue accumulating in the liver. So essentially the scar tissue develops to replace the injured tissue caused by uh, alcohol toxicity over time. And there is a special form, a more severe, aggressive, acute form of alcohol-related liver injury that we call alcohol-related hepatitis or alcoholic hepatitis, um, when these patients may actually present acutely ill, essentially present as if they had sepsis. They may have fevers. Sepsis meaning uh, infection, exactly. bloodstream infection. Exactly, Blood, bloodstream infection or severe infection. So they have high-grade fevers, severe abdominal pain. Uh, they are acutely ill, and oftentimes they may be, may be misdiagnosed with having an infection if a good history is not taken in. Uh, we don't know about their alcohol consumption. And that can happen at any stage. Early patients without cirrhosis are at risk for alcohol-related hepatitis, and patients with cirrhosis can also develop it. I'm not a doctor, and I'm, no one's ever accused me of being a mathematician, but I'm going to take a crack at this, because you said it can start in the mid-20s, and if for 20 years later, you can then have alcohol-related cirrhosis when you're in your mid-40s? Oh, absolutely. And wow. Yes, there are patients who develop cirrhosis in the 30s even. Um, because, again, there are many factors that influence that or how uh, fast or how quickly cirrhosis may develop and may progress, and there are genetic uh, uh, 
factors as well, genes that increase the risk of somebody developing liver disease. Um, as I mentioned, obesity, the gender, uh, family history, so there are many components. So some people are at the risk of developing cirrhosis at a very young age in their you know, early 30s, early 40s. So there are basically three stages, the first Correct. being fatty liver, the second being inflammation or hepatitis, and the third being cirrhosis or scarring of the liver. Correct. I yes. thought that the liver was the un- one organ that had the ability to regenerate, make more of itself. Why doesn't that happen? That, that is true, and, and that is correct. So the liver has the capacity to regenerate when it's healthy, when it's injured. Um, and in fact, um, the early stages, um, even alcohol-related hepatitis, when there is no established cirrhosis, can still be uh, reversible. So the liver can regenerate, um, but for that to happen, the injury, has, the injury has to stop. So in this case, the drinking has to stop. And if cirrhosis has not, been, has not established yet or uh, ensued yet, then uh, all the other stages are potentially reversible. So the liver cannot regenerate, though, if it has scar tissue in it or if it has a lot of scar tissue in it, cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is the only stage that's not uh, reversible. Our guest is an expert on alcohol-related liver disease, liver specialist, Dr. Doug Simonetto. So we've determined for certain that alcohol is not uh, uh, good for the liver. There are three stages of, of liver disease. Um, when these patients uh, come in, how do they usually present and how do you confirm the diagnosis? Yes, so it depends on the on the stage or the phase um, where the where they are in, in regards to alcohol-related liver disease. As I mentioned earlier, early stages, the patients may have no symptoms, and oftentimes they are found to have some ongoing liver injury based on blood tests showing elevated liver enzymes or imaging, like an ultrasound or a CAT scan that shows fat accumulation in the liver. So there are blood tests that you can do that tell that your liver is not functioning properly. Well, so there are two types of liver tests that we talk about. So there are the, the true liver function tests, which actually measure the function of the liver, how well the liver is working. And there are also markers of liver injury. And those are the liver enzymes, for example, AST and ALT that the doctor may order. Those liver enzymes don't reflect function. They reflect injury or cell damage or inflammation, but they don't reflect how well your liver is working. So somebody can have a lot of inflammation in the liver based on high liver enzymes, but they still have normal liver function. Uh, but if the injury progresses and cirrhosis develops, then the liver function can be affected as well. I would think if you've got uh, inflammation of your liver, you might be in some pain too. Is that part of the diagnosis? Uh, for alcohol-related hepatitis, it is, which is that acute, more severe form of alcohol-related liver injury. So these patients uh, often present with pain in the right, in the abdomen, in the right upper side, which where the liver is located. Uh, it can be quite severe pain. Sometimes it can actually accumulate fluid in the in the in the abdomen, in the belly. We call that ascites, the medical term for that, and that can cause discomfort, bloating, distension, um, and pain as well. And that can present both in alcohol-related hepatitis as well as in patients who have already developed uh, cirrhosis of the liver. You could also get uh, some bleeding from uh, having a severe disease of your liver, right? Correct. And and how does that happen? Yes. Where do you bleed from? Yes, a great question. So um, true... Again, stages where this can happen. One is the alcohol-related hepatitis and two patients with cirrhosis. And why that happens is because when the liver is really inflamed, either engorged with a lot of inflammation from alcoholic hepatitis or when there is scar tissue in the liver, the liver is shrunk and stiff, it's hard for the blood flow, the blood coming from all 
the gut and intestines to go through the liver to get back to the circulation. So the liver is sort of like a refinery, isn't it? All of the blood from most of the, of the body yes. goes through the liver and... All the blood from the gut, the esophagus, um, the stomach, the intestines go through the liver to be filtered and toxins should be metabolized and so on. Uh, so when the liver is sick and has scar tissue and cirrhosis and stiff and is hardened, the pressure in these vessels draining the blood from the gut increases. So mm. it has high blood pressure inside those veins that drain the gut. As a consequence of that, patients with cirrhosis and alcoholic hepatitis can develop varicose veins, varicose veins in the esophagus and the stomach on the inside. And those veins have high, very high blood pressure, and they are prone to rupture. And if they rupture, they can bleed, and the bleeding can be quite significant, internal bleeding into the stomach, into the, the, the intestines. Do you ever develop liver cancer as a result of, of uh, too much alcohol? Uh, yes. So liver cancer can develop in patients with uh, cirrhosis of the liver. So liver cancer is not common in patients without liver disease, uh, but it does tend to develop in patients who have scar tissue in the liver, cirrhosis in the liver. And that's not just from alcohol, but any uh, cause of uh, cirrhosis is the cirrhosis itself that increases the risk of liver cancer. So fluid in the abdomen, in internal bleeding, uh, potential cancer, that these are some pretty big complications. Any other ones? Yes. Another big one is um, confusion and potentially coma. So as I mentioned, we were talking before that all the blood coming from the gut goes through the liver to be metabolized and filtered. So many toxins that are pro- products of uh, bacteria in the gut, uh, such as ammonia, for example, get to the liver to be filtered and metabolized. So if the liver is sick and is not working properly, these toxins don't get degraded or metabolized. They bypass mm-hmm. the liver and end up going to the brain. And when they reach the brain, they can cause confusion. They can cause disorientation. They can cause some uh, changes in um, the speech uh, and eventually even coma when severe. None of it sounds very good. Yeah. All right, let's talk about treatment options Uh, other than abstinence. I suspect that's probably the most important thing. If uh, they find out they have a patient has liver disease, you say you got to stop drinking. But other options. Yes. So, yes, by far, abstinence is the number one treatment for all the stages of alcohol-related liver disease is by far the most important. Um, Early stages, that's the only treatment, um, alcohol abstinence. And it's important to think about treatment of alcohol use disorder as well. So these patients may have um, a problem with alcohol excess and addiction, and there are medications that can help treat that problem. So some people have a hard time just stopping drinking on their own, and they should seek help uh, to achieve that. Uh, it's important to achieve abstinence and to sustain abstinence for the injury to not uh, continue to uh, start again. Then... Moving on to the alcohol-related hepatitis, that acute severe form of uh, injury to the liver. Um, and this can happen to virtually anyone, even even if they weren't a heavy drinker before. Someone has a, a lot of alcohol, drinks a lot of alcohol, they can come in with this acute hepatitis, right? Absolutely, absolutely. At any stage, that can happen. And this acute hepatitis form, um, in addition to, again, abstinence, there are some medications that have been tested, uh, not really being proven yet to be effective. Uh, one that we sometimes use is prednisone, and that is some data supporting that that medication may help decrease the inflammation and to give time for the liver to essentially cool off and, and abstinence to, to really take an effect. Uh, there are many studies uh, ongoing right now with new drugs, anti-inflammation drugs, that may help also this acute hepatitis phase, but nothing else besides prednisone shown to work yet. 
Um, in that acute phase, in addition to abstinence, maybe uh, prednisone or steroids. Um, nutrition is very important. So oftentimes these patients may be malnourished and have a nutritional problem. Because they get all of their calories from alcohol. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So they don't have enough protein in their diet. They actually lose a lot of muscle mass, muscle strength. Um, and that's really important to try to rebuild that strength and that muscle um, uh, mass. So if it gets to the point that um, you have to have a transplant mm-hmm. is your only option, I think sometimes people might say, well, then why can't they have a liver transplant? Yeah. Why can't patients have a liver transplant? Or is everyone eligible? Yes. So that's the ultimate treatment. So getting going, getting to the end stage of cirrhosis, as I mentioned before, it's not reversible, even sometimes with, uh, unfortunately, with prolonged alcohol abstinence. Treatment will be, the, uh, excuse me, transplant will be the ultimate treatment. And yes, uh, we have uh, in the recent years now uh, been able to offer liver transplant for patients with alcohol-related liver disease, as well as alcohol-related hepatitis that doesn't improve with steroids, prednisone, or with abstinence. Now, in the past, we had the six-month rule, which some people may be familiar with, that we had required patients to be abstinent for, abstinent for six months before being considered eligible for transplant. Now we're staying away from that. We found that the six-month was arbitrary. There was no data to support that. What's more important is uh, their social support, sober social support, uh, their commitment to lifelong abstinence, and commitment to addiction treatment, either before or after transplant. So now many transplant centers in the U.S. are offering liver transplant for patients with alcohol-related liver disease, independent of the stage and the duration of abstinence. If the patient's not willing to do any of those three, either of or any of those three things, then they don't... They're not eligible for a transplant. Yes, if mm. they don't agree or they don't want to uh, stay abstinence, they don't commit to lifelong abstinence, or they don't want to uh, engage in treatment, then unfortunately most centers won't offer a liver transplant because the, the disease will happen again. So essentially they will receive a new healthy liver that will be a risk of developing the same problem uh, again. Are, are most of the donors living or deceased? Uh, mostly deceased donors. And do you remove the entire liver of the recipient, and and then do you put the whole liver of the donor in? Correct. For deceased donor transplant, yes, the whole liver is removed and a whole new liver is uh, placed in the same spot. You know, so often we're talking about cardiology and that, you know, one glass of wine isn't bad or maybe even beneficial for their heart. But I suppose the liver docs see it a little bit differently. (laughs) Is there a safe level of drinking alcohol? Yes, um, it's a tough question, and it's very controversial. I think, again, it depends. It's hard to say because it doesn't apply for everyone. There are many other factors that we have to take into account, as I mentioned before, like obesity, genetics, family history, um, and et cetera. So it's really hard to give exact number, and, and it's really important to talk to the doctor about what's safe for me based on my risk factors, my family history, based on my weight, et cetera. Um, and there is, as you mentioned, there is some suggestion that one drink a day may be beneficial for the heart, but for some people, one drink a day may be harmful to the liver. So, uh, the number one reason now for uh, a liver transplant is alcohol-related liver correct. disease, is it not? That is correct. Yes, uh, in the past few years now, with a decrease in the number of hepatitis C, which have we have treatments now for hepatitis C, so that is coming down as an indication for transplant, and alcohol is rising. 
All right, alcohol-related liver disease, becoming increasingly common in the United States now, one of the leading causes of death in the U.S., killing more than 250,000 people every year, and an explosion, unfortunately, of young women with liver disease dying in their 30s and 40s. Truly an unfortunate condition. And now, the number one reason for liver transplants in the United States. It's all preventable. Mm -hmm. Alcohol in moderation, or maybe not at all. Our thanks to today's guest, liver specialist, Dr. Doug Simonetto. Dr. Simonetto, thanks so much, so much for being with us. Thank you again for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the growing specialty of cardio-oncology. And we'll learn how lifestyle factors can influence brain health. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Here's some news about the dangers of falling. It turns out more older Americans are reportedly dying from it. Many of these deaths are related to hip fractures and traumatic brain injuries from which patients don't recover. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association states that fatal falls have nearly tripled in older Americans during a 16-year span, rising to more than 25,000 deaths yearly. The circumstances were not included in the study, but in a news report, Elizabeth Burns, a study co-author, said that deaths from falls may have increased because older people are living longer, living longer independently, and are living longer with chronic conditions. Also, some medications can make older adults prone to falls. This study points to the importance of fall prevention, which includes exercises to build muscle strength and balance. Dr. Robert Wormers, a Mayo Clinic endocrinologist, has conducted fall prevention research and says Tai Chi is a low-impact balance exercise that can reduce falls and prevent life-impairing bone fractures in seniors. Dr. Wormers says any type of non-impact balance exercises two or three times a week is beneficial. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. More people, including a lot of older adults, are being successfully treated and are surviving cancer. That's, that's good. It's great news. Yeah. That is the good news. But yeah. the bad news is that the treatment can cause other problems, including heart disease. It can cause a new heart problem or it can make an existing heart problem worse. Well, what can you do about it? Well, there's a new medical specialty area devoted just to that issue, cancer and the heart, and it's called cardio-oncology. And joining us in studio to tell us about it is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Hector Villaraga. Dr. Villaraga also serves as editor for the Mayo Clinic Health Letter. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me here. Dr. Villaraga, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, a new medical specialty, uh, relatively new. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. No, it doesn't. It's been around now for eight to ten years, and it is called cardio-oncology, just like you guys said it. And that's because more people are able to survive cancer, and so you get the after-effects of being a cancer survivor. Yes, and that's a nice thing. So cancer survival is going up, as well as the age, and survival age is going up. So now the side effects of cancer treatment can be happening Mm -hmm. in the heart. Yeah, so uh, this is something that you realize because a, a lot of people in the past weren't surviving, so you didn't have to deal with these problems and the side effects of the therapy, but now you do. Now we do, but we can also detect earlier damage if there could be and work with the oncologist to try to avoid heart damage for the future. 
So particularly a patient who has a history of heart disease and then develops cancer, you want to see those patients to help them through the treatment and also afterwards. Of course, but not only those, also the ones that don't have heart disease. We would like to be proactive and work with our oncologist to see if we can detect earlier dysfunction of the heart muscle and then give them treatment to cardioprotect the heart while they are getting chemo or radiotherapy or both. What what do those cancer treatments do to your heart? So there's many classifications of the cancer treatments. We can just say there's one type that could produce irreversible damage, and the main medication will be called anthracyclines. And there's others that are reversible, and I will probably put the majority of all the other medications there. But it can cause... Fibrosis of the heart muscle, that means it cannot contract well. That's scarring, basically. It's scarring, yes. Mm-hmm. And the others could pro- produce inflammation of the heart muscle, which acute changes that acute heart failure that can be, the patient can improve just with medical treatment. What about radiation? Radiation is very interesting because we have the old radiation technique, which is called photon therapy, the new kid on the block, which is proton therapy, And for the photon therapy, the old type, which is this x-rays, it produces acceleration of atherosclerosis, so plaques in the coronaries. But in the early 2000s, somebody said, hey, I'm going to try to do a study to see if we can decrease radiation to the heart, and it was so simple. Just a breath hold during radiotherapy avoids a lot of extra x-rays to the heart. So that changed the landscape a lot. And then came the new kid on the block, which is proton therapy, which just delivers the amount of beam there in the tumor, so it avoids the heart a lot. So they can basically stop the beam before it gets to the heart? The proton will just explode, if I can put it like that, next to the tumor and not around the heart or the other structures. Yeah. So that's amazing. Huge advance. So I assume that the oncologists try to avoid those drugs that can potentially cause irreversible heart damage, but sometimes they can't. Um, and if you if they've had a drug that uh, exacerbates a heart problem, um, how do you detect that? So there's different methods of detecting it, but one of the main cornerstones of medications that they use, anthracycline, which has been around for a while, they use it for sarcomas, breast cancer, and lymphomas. Is that adriamycin? Adriamycin, okay. yes. And what they do is now they know up to what dose they have to give the patient before it can have severe side effects, which is 250 milligrams per meter squared. After we as cardiologists suggest the oncologist that every 50 milligrams per meter squared the patient should be monitored with an echocardiogram just to rule, check that the function is well. We can go beyond just the basic echocardiography and look at how the muscle deforms, and that's another new kid on the block, which is called strain echocardiography, which just looks at the deformation of the muscle, and we have many protocols that we can predict who's going to drop the function of the heart or the ejection fraction, in the future, just when the strain changes. So an uh, electrocardiogram is basically an ultrasound of the heart, right? No radiation involved? The electrocardiogram will be the electrical part of the heart. The echocardiogram will be the ultrasound of the heart, which is no radiation at all. What about uh, 
what should all of the cancer survivors that are listening, what should they take away from this? Should they go and talk to a cardiologist and say, this is something new? I should be seen for this? What should they do? That's a great question. So what we want our the cancer patients to be proactive with their oncologist, ask them if they need some to do something to protect their heart while they're going to start treatment or not. If they are, they should have a cardio-oncology team next to them that can work with the oncologist. The idea is not to take the patient out or do not give the medications, just to protect their heart while they're receiving it. And then we have many guidelines to follow depending on the medication, how often they have to be imaged or seen. And that's, you can Google it or you can just look at it on our website, mayoclinic.org, how frequent they need to look at your heart. And is this something that for cancer survivors, you know, that first five years is so, uh, so important or is this going forward for the rest of your life something that could be of concern? So of the first five years, depending on the medication, if it's just adriamycin, we see we evaluate the patient before the medication, during the medication, and then six months after, and then five years then after every five years. If it's radiotherapy, we talked a little bit before about accelerated atherosclerosis. We want to do a stress form of test on that heart 10 years after radiotherapy because patients can develop plaque before the normal population does, and we have to be aware of it. So just to be clear, there's an increased risk of uh, developing heart disease when you have cancer, but it's based on not the type of cancer that you have, but what kind of chemo, what kind of treatment you get, what kind of chemotherapy you get. That is correct. Very good assertion. Yes. And adriamycin is kind of the... Adriamycin the is one of the big ones that can harm the heart, but we have now protocols that you can cardioprotect the heart while the patient needs higher dose of adriamycin if needed. So for that, we just work very closely with our oncology colleagues. And fortunately, it's a relatively small number of patients that uh, have cancer who develop problems with their heart during treatment or after, right? That is correct. Actually, to answer that, we did a very interesting study here in Olmsted County, and we followed a 1,000 patients with cancer and 1,500 controls that had the same diseases but not cancer. And we found that the incidence of heart failure was about 8% in the cancer patients, while the normal population about 35 So it does double the incidence of heart failure. Well, fortunately, not that many people being treated for cancer do develop heart disease. You said about 8% versus in the population 3 or 4, so maybe double. Maybe double, but that's in a 25-year follow-up. When you have, sometimes in the acute setting when the patient is receiving chemotherapy, they can have side effects of other medications that can take them into acute heart failure. But normally we manage that. They stop the chemo for some weeks, and the patient can be given medications again for the heart and restart it. All right. We now know that it's important to be proactive in preventing heart problems or catch and treat them as early as possible. There's a team of physicians at the Mayo Clinic who do just that, and they are called cardio-oncologists. One of them, Dr. Hector Villaraga. Dr. Villaraga, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Can mentally stimulating activities reduce the risk of cognitive impairment as we age? Well, another way to say that is, can games, crafts, and using a computer really decrease your risk of getting senile as you get older? Well, maybe. Joining us by telephone from Mayo Clinic in Arizona is psychiatrist and behavioral neurologist, Dr. Jonas Gaeta. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gaeta. It's nice to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Dr. Gettys. So, uh, so that we all understand the terminology, uh, first define cognitive impairment and then mild cognitive impairment for us. Thank you. Uh, maybe let me start with mild cognitive impairment. Mayo Clinic actually is uh, the leading institution that defined, developed this concept and uh, validated it. So, Dr. Ronald Peterson is really the lead investigator in this area. So what was being studied in the late 80s in Rochester, Minnesota, was dementia and normal aging. Then researchers started to observe that there are elderly persons who are neither demented nor cognitively normal, so they are in the gray zone. So they could be forgetful for recent events and future engagements. When we say forgetful, it's not like misplacing car key. I'm talking for, forgetting that a person has a flight from Rochester to New York City, forgetting a critically important information communicated by telephone or repeating oneself again and again. So they started, Dr. Peterson and colleagues started to observe these types of individuals, and then they said, well, let us investigate this. And then they came up with a, a criteria. Mild cognitive impairment means forgetfulness for recent events and future engagements. And when the person is tested, the problem could be in one or two areas of cognitive problem. Overall, intelligence and other things are normal on testing, and the person is functioning independently. That's very important to distinguish it from dementia. So that is defined as mild cognitive impairment. Whereas cognitive impairment in general is a big set. So that is a set. Under cognitive impairment, we have mild cognitive impairment, we have dementia, we have different things. So the, the bigger umbrella term is cognitive impairment, whereas within that there are specific types of cognitive impairment. I hope this answers your question. Well, it does, but also tell us, um, is this the same thing as what we used to call senility? Senility, it can be interpreted as uh, some sort of memory problem that is manifesting with as normal aging. It could be that one. But I think uh, I would say I don't think the word senility directly translates into mild cognitive impairment. Okay. Tell us about the study. It, it, whatever these, all of these terms that you have just talked yeah. about, none of us want to have that. So, <laughs> how, how can you, how can we help ourselves? Yeah, what did you learn through that study? Uh, so we really asked very simple questions. The question we asked: Are there some mental activities that are accessible to everyone? For example, in persons above age seventy that live in Olmsted County, Minnesota. When do, do some of them engage in craft activities? Do they have group activity, for example, Bible study as a group? Do they engage in social activities like going to a museum, going to movie, and socializing, meeting? How about reading books? 
and how about using computers? So we looked at these types of simple things that do not cost us money. And, and then we said, okay, engaging in these activities, do they decrease the risk of uh, uh, mild cognitive impairment or dementia? And we were, I have to say, we were pleasantly surprised that uh, several of these simple mental activities decrease the risk of uh, mild cognitive impairment or MCI if a person engaged in those activities at least three or four times per week. So uh, remind you, I want to remind you that before the mental activities, we have also done physical activity study. We also ask the same question. If, I, let's say I am 75 years old, retired, after a dinner, if I go for a leisurely walk in my neighborhood, would that decrease my risk of MCI, mild cognitive impairment? And we observed that even leisurely walk, when carried out three or more times a week, was associated with decreased risk of mild cognitive impairment. Therefore, it seems like all the roads lead to Rome, you know, engaging in mental activities and some degree of physical activity seem to decrease the risk of MCI. And, and which was better? Uh, actually, this was uh, uh, our curiosity as well. So I think that when you look at this, we measure decreased risk using different uh, uh, quantities, uh, relative risk, etc. They are very similar, really. And uh, how about uh, combining the two? Uh, the, some people call that, you know, one of the students called it, how about the combo? The combining the two seem to be even a little better. So we have done that study a few years ago, and... Uh, I think it is very comparable, both mental activities and physical activity. I think doing both seem to be even better. What about social activities? Yeah, we, cons- we took social activities under mental activities. We included that. And social activities was also associated with decreased risk of MCI. And I think you studied some 2,000 people, didn't you? Yes. So these are uh, residents of Olmsted County, the study the, uh, the umbrella study is called Mayo Clinic Study of Aging. Uh, the lead investigator is Dr. Peterson. And within that study, we took 2,000 persons, 70 years and older. And uh, in 2006, or around that time, we collected information about mental activities and physical activities. So, and so then, what what qualifies as a mental mentally stimulating activity? Uh, we simply we define them as reading books, using computers, social activities. We found this questionnaire, which is validated questionnaire, uh, used uh, by other uh, groups, and one of our colleagues, Dr. Nachman introduced it to our team, and we used that. It is a validated questionnaire, so it is listed. So these are reading books and uh, computer use, social activities, group activities, 
All these are defined as mental activities. And what about future research? So the the direction of uh, our future research, uh, what we are looking at this point in time is whether uh, there is we have a, a, there is a genetic risk uh, called APOE4 uh, for uh, contribute increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease if a person is engaging in physical activities, and still if the person has this APOE4 gene, would that decrease the risk of MCI, even if the person has the genetic risk? And uh, similar studies we have, we have undergoing analysis in this area. Well, then the more we know, the better. It looks yeah. like uh, keeping your brain active as long as well as some physical activity as we get older can help prevent cognitive impairment. So you exercise your brain, you exercise your body, and I guess keep your friends. That's right. Dr. Jonas Gaeta from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.